Hello and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is a cross-partisan non-profit building a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Isaiah, and this week, Divya, Inika, Madeline, Olivia, and I spoke with Karen Murphy, the Director of International Strategy for Facing History and Ourselves. Karen had a lot to contribute to our series on national identity, inclusion, and belonging with her global lens drawing upon lessons learned from Northern Ireland and South Africa. Her worldview is predicated on the belief that we have to know where we come from, individually and collectively, in order to make decisions about where we are, where we're heading, and what it will take to get there. We talked about how the history we learn changes over time, not just in terms of the what and the who, but what is actually considered history, and how what is omitted is often as important as what is included. We also talked about how to reckon with the contradictions of our history, for example, that our forefathers idolized freedom while keeping a significant portion of the population from being free. And, of course, we talked about the warring visions for the future of our country, the period of transition we are in, and the need to restore not just institutions of democracy, but habits of democracy and relationships that have been breaking down for quite some time. Thank you for joining us. Hi everyone, my name is Divya Ganesan. I'm a high school senior from the Bay Area, California. Um, I'm the co-founder of Real Talk and as an NGV podcaster, I'm really excited to hear from engaging diverse perspectives and today specifically to learn about how we can look at history from different lens, especially as it connects to justice. Hi, I'm Inika Kodestani and I'm a high school junior from New Jersey. And in addition to being a podcaster, I'm also the co-editor-in-chief of the Next Generation Politics blog. And today I really like to um, talk about, you know, what democracy is and how we can truly see national identity in context of a global identity and really understand how important it is to understand that we're not the only ones in the world. Hi, my name is Madeline Mays. I'm a high school sophomore from Brooklyn, New York, and I'm extremely passionate about bridging gaps between groups of people and, and developing a sense of community across this new generation Gen Z, um, regardless of where we fall on the political spectrum. Yeah, hi, I am Olivia. I am a senior from New York City. And in addition to being a podcaster, I'm also the National Director of Outreach and Engagement for NGP, as well as a Lead Civic Fellow at our program in New York City. And in general, but also today, I'm really passionate about learning and contextualizing the divides in, in American society and working to overcome them. Hi, my name is Isaiah Taylor. I'm currently a senior at Benjamin Franklin, Franklin High School, and I'm also a Lead Civic Fellow for Next Generation Politics. And I'm just really interested to see, uh, like what Olivia said about bridging bipartisan divides and not uh, bipartisan decisions and how they're made. Hi, my name is Karen Murphy. I'm very happy to meet you. I'm the Director of International Strategy at Facing History and Ourselves, which is a non-governmental organization that has a headquarters in Boston, but we work globally. And how did I come to this work? There are more than one answer to that, but one is that um, both because of my personal experience um, growing up in the United States and um, being aware of the way that certain histories weren't taught, especially histories that are about um, histories of racial violence or histories that um, have been marginalized, how much they are core actually to understanding who we are and how things happen and why we do the way 
um, why we do things the way we do them. Um, and so I learned, I think pretty early, maybe in college, but through the models of my professors, what a difference education could make and also what a difference history could make. And um, I got a doctorate in American studies. Part of what I looked at was um, uh, intellectual history, the history of ideas, but also this moment in the United States and our history, the progressive era. And the way that during that period, um, you could see that the development of race as an idea and racial violence coincided actually with the development of, of modern democracy. And I wanted to know how those things sort of work hand in hand. Um, I started working at Facing History in 1997. I'm a New Yorker, like some of you. Um, and I work in a lot of countries around the world that have recognized some more formally than the United States that you actually have to look at your history in order to um, build a, a safe, secure democracy in the present and for the future, but that you also have to know where you come from in order to make good decisions uh, about where you are. And so that, that's some of the work that I do. And I'm also part of um, Facing History Senior Team. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like no small feat. Um, but given that you've been at Facing History for, for so long, what are some of the more important takeaways relating to you know, contextualizing history, how we choose to learn history, how it's written, and then also that more international perspective that you have, have gained? Well, I think one thing about how we learn history, it's a really important question, is to think about the fact that that does change over time. Not just what we care about and who we care about, but, but what is actually considered history. So facing history, for example, started in 1976, and our founders attended a conference on the Holocaust, and that was the first time they learned of that history. And so we take for granted now that this is something that people should just know, but that's actually history that people in some ways had to make the case that we needed to know. So I think that, um, I'll give you an example. When I taught at the University of Minnesota, we worked on a curriculum for multicultural education. And that meant that young people were required to learn about different events, different histories, different experiences, not just sort of a dominant narrative of American history. That was 1991, right? So this is a moment when people were beginning to have a conversation that looks very similar to the conversation we're in today, which reminds us that just because you make a decision about the importance of a historical event, let's say we should all learn about Frederick Douglass, or we should all read Toni Morrison, or we should all learn about, um, the New York draft riots or something like that. It doesn't mean that's true forever unless the people who are making decisions, and that includes teachers in their classrooms and education officials and textbook writers and others, um, decide that those things are important. And so to your question about facing history, um, there've been a lot of changes over time, but one of the changes I've seen I'm going to name a couple, both positive and negative. So um, when I started facing history, I think there was a more expansive view of, um, of education and of teaching. 
and educators had more time and space to be creative. And we thought of them as curriculum developers, not as curriculum deliverers. I mean, curriculum deliverers sounds like pizza. Like they make it, they stick it in there and they give it to you and you're, I guess you eat it up, right? It doesn't treat teachers as people who need to think and develop their craft and who have to work at this, right? We've gotten to a place because of testing and STEM and so little time in the curriculum where, where I think teachers are treated like um, they need to do something that looks much more like a cookbook. And that, that doesn't really treat teachers like creative people and it does, certainly doesn't treat students like them. Um, so that's a negative. On the positive side, I think one of the things that's really exciting is seeing how much young people in particular, and also lots of educators, are pointing to histories untaught or histories marginalized or um, scholars and artists and creative people who we should be paying attention to, who it's not just that they're somehow lost, they're, they're actively marginalized or neglected. And you know, you're all interested in these questions of crossing borders and boundaries and inclusion. And given how segregated our school systems are and also our communities, the role of the teacher and the voices they can bring into a classroom, the different perspectives they bring in is even more powerful now and, and more important. Yeah, I think the point that you're making about history, it's not really how you're taught, it's what you're taught. I think that's really interesting because um, we were talking about this in like one of our, a couple podcasts ago about how the story of Thanksgiving has been, you know, <laughs> warped over time. And that's something that like we're taught, we're taught about Thanksgiving, but I feel like even more important is the things that we aren't taught, like about even modern history, you know, like within the past world war, like things that America has done that we're just simply not aware about because it's not taught in schools because um, like our textbooks are from like the early 2000s at best. And they've been like, there's been a little update since then. And I think it's really interesting how um, what is omitted is also as important as the things that are included. And they're both like having negative impacts on like how we're able to understand history. So I thought that was definitely really interesting. And I just wanted to know what you think about like including the stuff that we haven't been taught in history and how we can sort of allow it to be learned mm -hmm. and how we would go about that in a way that's not completely like overwhelming the status quo. One thing about the how, which I think is a little bit different than what you're saying, is I think there's a marriage um, with how you teach and what you teach. Okay, so um, if you think about it like a doctor, and if you really have the skills of, of being a surgeon, then even in an emergency, you should be able to apply those skills, even if you're not an expert in one kind of surgery to another, right? With teachers, part of also, I think that the how part is the more confident you are, the more skilled you are at teaching as a practice, the more you can apply that to um, other things that you teach. And so in the case of history, what's very important to me, I think to us, is if you're going to teach about a very difficult moment in, in your history, in human history, but also your history, um, you're asking people to look at something, one, they may have lived through or their parents lived through, and their parents could have been 
victims in the story, or they could be um, people whose relatives acted badly in the story, right? This is intimate. This isn't something that's so distant and far away and, and feels like facts. It's, it's, a, it's the story of us. And that in itself is a skill to be able to think about how you can have such a difficult conversation that is personal and close and challenging and has consequences. So I'm gonna give you an example of Northern Ireland. Um, there's been a decades long war in Northern Ireland called the Troubles that uh, ended in 1998 with a peace agreement. And even though it ended officially, there are still legacies of that. And teachers have struggled um, with how you teach something that one, you grew up in, two, teachers were taught themselves in single identity contexts. Now they're teaching in single identity contexts. When they're trying to teach about what happened, those events include judgments, right? So when you talk about the Irish Republican Army or you talk about the role of British troops on Bloody Sunday, these aren't abstractions. These are people who made choices and their choices often led to devastating consequences. But the thing in Northern Ireland is there is not primary agreement on who the bad actors were, who the good actors were, who the victims were, and also who, who were like the heroes or the, okay, so there's not a common shared understanding of the past. And that makes it incredibly hard then to develop a shared understanding of, of your present and your future. So to your question, when we think about those difficult moments in our own past, history and what we can teach is always gonna be bound by time, right? You only have so much time to teach. You only have so much time to learn and so on. So in some ways, textbooks do a disservice because they present this thing beginning to end as if you can just read it and know all that stuff. I think that part of um, a useful approach is looking either at a period of time and multiple stories within the context of that time and seeing how they operate in relationship to each other. So I was just talking to a young man um, before this conversation. And if I was teaching James Baldwin, for example, um, some people would put him very squarely in conversation with other African-American writers or he'd put him in conversation with people looking at race or social justice. But you could also put him in conversation with Simone de Beauvoir and Albert Camus. I mean, those were his people too. Those were his ideas too, you know? So I think our universe of thinking about the conversations we create and how much we also help people see the connections you can make between ideas and people, or why wouldn't you put James Baldwin in conversation with Franz Fanon? and talk about you know, the, the conversation people are having that's related to decolonization. Yeah, no, I was actually gonna say that's particularly relevant at my school. Actually, James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time was a mandatory reading um, for all English classes, right? Mm -hmm. so whether it was an elective in sacred texts or in you know, the all 10th grade American English class or in my you know, senior seminar class, right? Every class read it through a different lens right, us through a kind of more literary lens of sacred text through his mentions um, of the Bible and the Quran. 
and everyone because of that had a very different interpretation mm -hmm. and used his his you know the same words to have different meaning mm -hmm. and to progress the class in a different way which i think was very relevant to your message right like people are in constant you know dialogue with with different types of people with different identifiers with different stories and i think that was evident in the fact that every class read it and every class had a really rich discussion as a result that's exciting and i think it also means you know you emerge then as a school as a class with a shared vocabulary and language and touch point so when you look at a place like south africa um, in the wake of apartheid with the um, new constitution or the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission or some of the other things that they, they did to build their new democracy, they actively made a case for the fact that apartheid in the past had to be a touchstone for contemporary citizenship. So just imagine as Americans, if we were to say, in order to be Americans today, there's just stuff we have to know there's just stuff we have to know in order to treat each other well, to hear each other, to see each other, to make sense of the world in which we live. I couldn't agree more. Olivia, it's really cool to hear the different texts that your school has implemented as kind of like required and overall. Um, and I know a discussion that my school has been having is how we think about specifically authors in the past, but also it's a discussion today about how do we reckon with people who have achieved great things, whether that's authors, um, president, et cetera, but have also in many ways during their time upheld systems of oppression and discrimination. And I know this has been a national debate and I'm wondering through your lens as both a historian and a creator of some of this curriculum, how you view um, historical individuals who we, maybe we read their works in class, maybe we admire them for the great achievements, but at the same time have also done a lot of things that we're not proud of as a country. I think it's such an important question. I think that societies, individual and societies should never lose um, ethical judgment. We need that. We need to have um, a moral lens to help orient us. Um, so there's a few answers. One is that it's always important in a period of time to find people who went another way so that you can't make the case, well, that's just how things were, okay? So I'll give you an example. Um, in the period that is sometimes referred to as Jim Crow, um, where there was a, a lot of racial violence in the United States, including lynching, um, and racism was, was a taken for granted. It would be possible for some people to say, well, this, this is how things were then. But it's so important to point to the people who said, no, this is wrong. It's not only indefensible and illegal, it's, it, it's inhumane, it's, you know, name your word, okay? And there were people who stood and not only people like Ida B. Wells, who everyone should be studying at this point, but I think it's a powerful example of um, let's never look at a moment in time and say, well, that's just how people were because it's never true. That's one. The second thing is we do at different times develop new standards and that's okay. It's okay to be able to say when I was in college, we said things, we made jokes about things that aren't that funny now. Okay. Do we, are we able to say that because um, customs and, and um, 
norms and mores change, that we're able to also allow people some grace to also be able to change. Now that's different than breaking the law or that's different than doing something, you know, horrific or violent. Um, so I think, and that, that gets to sort of the canceling idea too, you know, just because somebody has done something in the past, um, does that make everything they've done obsolete? Now, I do think though, that we sometimes talk about some people like Thomas Jefferson, for example, and we treat it like um, a flat contradiction. He was a founding father and he owned slaves. And I think contradiction becomes the answer rather than something much more complex, which is how can you hold the ideas of freedom and unfreedom together at the same time? That's much more complicated and that's much more at the heart of our democracy. How is it possible for us to act simultaneously believing these two things at once? It, you know, trying to tease that apart and figuring out how we work that way it, it will help us get closer to becoming a fuller, more inclusive democratic society than if we just say, well, some people did this and then they were hypocrites. No, it's much more complex when we say, actually they could do this and this other thing at the same time because they mutually reinforced each other. That, that's a, a harder thing to wrap your head around. Um, and I think that one of the things about the United States in particular is it, it is, this isn't about American exceptionalism in the sense of like, oh, the United States is so great. The United States is different in that. It is based on an idea. Being part of the United States was not about birth or blood, but about the idea um, that you're committing to a principle. Um, and, I think that, you know, when we look at that idea of, of you know, we the people or the, the constitution of the declaration and imagine that we, when it was first articulated was very narrow. And to think that the people who were, um, had that vision were actually thinking about all of us on this screen right now, it, it would be naive. Of course they weren't. But I think one of the, the things that's been extraordinary about this country is the power of the people who made the case that that we should be elastic and inclusive and that it actually should be a promise owed to all of us. And then the people have made that happen and pushed the country and its leadership and the Supreme Court and the institutions in that direction, rather than those institutions and people and courts and other things were already there and we're just sort of rising to meet them. That's not the case. It's really the people who have been marginalized, who historically said, no, 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 no. You know, we are part of that grand idea and we will make it so. Yeah, that's a really interesting point to think about and the historical context and the power of the people. And as um, currently, I feel like our society has just become kind of like a war zone and people are dehumanizing each other left and right as we think that we are supposedly moving into an era of greatness. We have these like two contradicting ideas for our future one that's it's just going to explode eventually and the other that it's going to enter this age of 
of gold and just um, flourishing, which we hope, but I'm not sure if that's the case. So what I'm thinking about is how we have instituted these ideas of dehumanization, whether that be historically or culturally or through generations, and how we get those people, how do we get the people to move the institutions, to push the institutions, like you say, because it's something that we all seem to strive for a lot, but it's much easier said than done. And it's hard to understand what we can actually do versus what we hope we can do. Well, this is where I think the ideas of transitional justice might be useful for this country. So if you think about transitional justice, um, the ideas are really tied to um, the notion that when countries are transitioning from one political dispensation, so let's say a dictatorship or authoritarianism or something like that, to democracy, that's a transition, but also from mass violence to stability or peace, okay? So in roughly the 1980s, a lot of people came together, people from civil society organizations, human rights lawyers, um, citizens, and they said, how do we, in countries where terrible things have happened that are trying to become democracies, how do we sort of do two things at once? How do we help the country become a democracy and create those institutions and norms and processes and all that stuff you need? And how do we help them acknowledge those terrible things that happened in part because there should be accountability, but also to acknowledge victims, okay? And one of the most sort of fully articulated examples of transitional justice is the case of South Africa and its transition from apartheid. And that was a negotiated settlement. It was a compromise, but included all kinds of new things like a constitution, a constitutional court, a new national anthem, a new flag. Um, a truth commission, but it also included a lot of other kinds of processes, a change in the history curriculum, retraining its teachers, that's part of the work I do. Um, so I think where we can learn is to think about this period we're in right now as one of transition. We're in a critical moment in American history where we have to restore our democracy and part of what we should have learned over the past few years and we're learning right now is that democracy isn't just institutions. For sure it's not. It's not just people and their choices. Of course it is. It's also about norms. It's about habits. It's about being able to stand up and say what's right and what's wrong, right? And um, it's also critically, as you point out, essentially about relationships. That's the that's the, just the backbone of democracy. It's a relationship between people and their elected representatives, between people and government. It's between people and each other. And those have all broken down and they've been breaking down. That didn't just happen over the past four years. They've been breaking down. So this question about democratic restoration to me is also about how do we restore our relationships with each other, okay? And that means a lot of border crossing and bridge building. And you don't do that by just having the hardest conversations you could ever have with somebody. I mean, you all know you have friendships and you've had friendships that have gone wrong, right? There's a moment when you might have to sit across from each other and say, I can't believe you did that to me or someone says that to you. But 
that's not the only thing you talk about. The way you became friends is because you have fun together and you might have something in common or you dance together or you cook together or you play sports together or whatever it is. We need to find some of those things that are going to allow us to develop relationships again across borders and boundaries. It could be sports. It could be music. It could be the arts. But you can't just think about um, relationship building as um, tending to the um, wounds by opening them. You have to open them. We have to. But part of what's going to allow us to stay in the room with each other when we get to a place either virtually or face-to-face -face, when we're in a room together is that there's enough trust, there's enough willingness to be in relationship that we can actually have a conversation. And so I'm going to give you an example of a, a lovely place. Um, there's a place called Corimila in Northern Ireland. It's the oldest reconciliation center. And you go there to do, you know, programs and workshops and seminars. They're our partner in Northern Ireland. But one of the things that happens when you're there is you have to eat meals together. So you can't, Sanda can't say, um, well, I've got to, you know, do this thing. I'll come at one. No, lunch is at noon, right? You all eat together. And then what happens is they say, I need, you know, five volunteers to do the dishes. And it's in the kitchen when you are washing the dishes that you develop a relationship. You have a shared task. You're doing something together. You're not talking about mass violence. You're saying, hand me the plate, wipe the floor, whatever. But you're working together. And it's those kinds of things that allow you then when you go into the room to have the harder conversation to be able to do that work. Now, it can't be a one-off, we know this, but I feel like I'm much more tolerant now of the idea that we have to do as many things as possible to bring people together for shared experiences. Um, and I'm, I'm, it's not enough for me to do just like, you know, a one-off, but at the same time, um, uh, we have to, in the next few years, figure out in really rigorous ways how we can be in relationship to each other. Yeah, um, this was mentioned in the in the chat, but I went to a really, really unique school for a semester that I think did an incredible job of this called the School for Ethics and Global Leadership mm -hmm. in Washington, D.C. It was 24 students, and it, it, it was about cultivating those relationships based and rooted in ethics and case studies that caused you to examine and re-examine history time and time again. And I'm just immensely grateful for that experience. Um, something you said earlier on really resonated with me, the notion that teachers and, and people like yourself have to fight for history, have to fight for things to be taught, right? How 20, 30, 40 years ago, people had to fight for the Holocaust, for Holocaust education in schools. And so my question is more of a forward looking one, but you know, I think that's something you have to do with your job every day, which is in 20, 30 or 40 years, you know, what history are we going to have to be fighting to be taught? Right? Well, you're still gonna have to fight for the Holocaust to be taught. And this is an important thing for you to think about. Those post-World War II commitments to memory, to prevention of genocide, to global alliances, they're all deteriorating right now. So if we actually want there to be a norm that says Holocaust and genocide education matters, every generation has to fight for that. Otherwise it will go. 
I mean, there was recently a study, I don't know how long ago, because I've lost my sense of time, but it like a, 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 an appalling percentage of Americans don't know about the Holocaust, okay? So yes, there are these requirements or these ideas now, but at the same time, it's very clear that they haven't been fulfilled. So I do think that, you know, going to your point, there's this question about both looking forward, what are those things, but it's also remembering there are important events that are taught now, but that we do not want to lose their importance in, in, in our histories. Um, I think that Americans are going to have to do a lot of work to make sure that the history of slavery and its legacies and the history of racial violence is at the center of our narrative, um, that it's not marginalized for people to try to work out where it fits in American history. Um, I think that we're going to have to work very hard to make sure that we don't treat history as the property of a particular group. So, you know, black people do slavery and Jewish people do the Holocaust and indigenous people do the Trail of Tears. Um, I think if we wanna to get to a place that's a more inclusive democracy, then we need to understand these histories as part of our collective history. And, and that's almost the harder work than the work of, of the what, right? Because it's dispositional. It's about actually saying, because this happened, it matters. There's a principle of reciprocity and mutuality there. My question was, do you believe that issues become antiquated or do you believe that because issues become antiquated that they should be prevalent? Give me an example. Uh, okay, so what is an example? Immigration in the 80s, this is kind of a domestic issue. I know you mm -hmm. specialize in international, but uh, immigration was very pro a very prevalent conversation in the 80s, but I feel like over time, it hasn't really been talked about much over the decades. It's been talked about less and less in conversation. So do you think that because that, that issues come out of conversation and out of the center of the pol political spectrum that it should be discussed more? Well, I mean, it clearly depends on the issue, but like, for example, um, my grandmother died of AIDS. And in the 1980s, when she, when she was sick, when she was diagnosed, there were very, very few people who were talking publicly about AIDS. It was a very, it, I mean, it's still stigmatized, but it was stigmatized in a way that it was, I mean, I didn't have any friends who had family members with AIDS or if I did, they weren't talking about it, right? And so you see the shift in that conversation at the same time, we should still be talking about AIDS. There are people who are still dying of AIDS, right? So there are things that we stop talking about that isn't because they don't matter anymore. It's because our tolerance for maintaining a conversation is so low, it's crazy. And Americans should, I mean, I'm just gonna say this, Americans should not be coddled like we're babies incapable of having complex thoughts, right? We should be able to continue to think about really difficult things. And we know immigration because of the global refugee crisis, because of actually climate change, immigration is going to be even more a pressing issue, right? And so we know obviously there are issues like DACA and others related to immigration in this country that are, that are a conversation, but this question of people moving, that's core to not just 
you know, the history of this country, that's core to the history of the world. So this question about how we're going to engage with people across borders and boundaries and, and are they full citizens or do they have rights and privileges? Are they protected? All those things, those questions, I think are going to have to stay with us. And then to your, your point about when we sort of lose interest in something, you know, sometimes that happens because something just is irrelevant anymore. Like we don't um, ride horses anymore on the street, right? So like why worry about laws related to horse riding? At the same time though, there are things that um, may have changed with technology. We have to deal now with the role of misinformation and technology, which 20 years ago, we just didn't. It wasn't part of the conversation because it wasn't related to the conversation. But I think there are plenty of things that we should still be tending to, which we've too easily forgotten. And so part of the work of being a citizen is being awake and saying, hey, just because you know we've forgotten that thing doesn't mean it doesn't matter anymore. I mean, how many years ago was it, Sandra, that we were talking about how we couldn't believe that music programs didn't exist in schools, right? And we were shocked because they were just taken out of schools because there was no funding. Well, just because we don't talk about that anymore, because we're worried about a global pandemic <laughs> and our democracy and other things doesn't mean that doesn't matter. So I think that part of being awake in the world means you might be curious or care about something long after other people have stopped talking about it. And that doesn't mean you should lose your curiosity or care. Um, and the thing that will surprise you is you'll find that five years later or whenever it is, people are talking about it as if they invented it. And that's been your curiosity or thing you cared about forever. That's all for today, friends. I'm editor Sarita Adabala signing off for all of us at Next Generation Politics. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends, or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded. Thanks for listening.